When we need guidance, we go to the scriptures and we go to prayer. And so Psalm 25 is a real appropriate text to teach on guidance because it is both scripture and it is prayer. So I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 25 and to read along with me. To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in thee I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Yea, let none that wait for thee be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all the day long. Be mindful of thy mercy, O Lord, and of thy steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to thy steadfast love, remember me. For thy goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For thy name's sake, O Lord, Pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. He himself shall abide in prosperity, and his children shall possess the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn thou to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred They hate me. Oh, guard my life and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in thee. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for thee. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. What I want to talk mainly about today is getting guidance from God for your personal life and for our church. Psalm 25 is, I think, one of the best passages in all the Bible for meditating on the means by which God guides. But before I get into the chapter, I want to sound a warning because of a concern I have about things I see in the wider evangelical community and Some here at Bethlehem. It's an amazing thing to me how many people consider themselves Christians 
who don't consult the counsel of Christ when making decisions. And so I want to sound this warning loud and clear and lovingly as I can today. You cannot be saved from sin if you reject the biblical Christ. The biblical Christ is both an authoritative advisor and an atoning savior. Therefore, if you try to accept him as an atoning savior and reject him as an authoritative advisor, you do not receive the Christ of the Bible and cannot be saved. No matter what contemporary evangelical spokesmen are saying about being able to receive him as Savior and not as Lord and be saved. Suppose Jesus were to walk through that door right now and walk up to you and say in his humble Eastern manner, Hello, my name is Jesus Christ. And I am the Son of God. And I have come into the world to save sinners and to give them everlasting joy and life with me in the kingdom of God. By my life and death, I atone for sin. And by my wisdom and counsel, I can show you how to make choices that will bring you to everlasting blessedness and joy. Will you trust me? And suppose you say, well, I do like the idea of going to heaven and having everlasting life and having all my sins forgiven. And I don't want to go to hell, but I've read some of your counsels about the good life in the Bible, and uh, I don't like them. I don't agree that that's the way to be happy. It looks Looks like a bummer to me. And so, I'll tell you what. I'll take your offer of forgiveness, but um, I, I don't think I'll take your counsel or your advice or your guidance. And uh, is that okay? Now, what would Jesus say to this person who just got saved by accepting Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. What would Jesus say to that person as he walked away? We know exactly what he would say. Because he said it one time. He would say to that person, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a person to get into the kingdom of God who thinks they know better than the living Christ how to run their lives. Now, I'm talking this morning mainly to people who believe in Jesus. 
I mean the biblical Jesus, not the Jesus of your imagination who comes to you with the author of with the offer of forgiveness and unacceptable counsel. That's the creation of a contemporary worldly evangelicalism to justify a life of indulgence and smooth it over with the veneer of cheap grace. Now I want to tell you this morning, the only path to salvation is the path of faith in the Christ of the Bible, not the Christ of your imagination that slices him in half, takes the one and throws the other away. You can't be saved that way. And I'm talking to people mainly this morning who trust Christ. But I hope that the rest of you, and there are people here who don't believe that Christ, who don't trust that Christ. You've got a Christ that you trust, but he is not the Christ that saves because he's not the Christ of the Bible. I'm talking to you, too, in the hopes that you would, perhaps by the grace of God, all of a sudden feel it is reasonable. That to reject the counsels of joy in the Ten Commandments and in the Sermon on the Mount and in 1 Corinthians, to, to reject the counsels of joy from the Almighty God is not only an insult to Him, but suicide to me. That's the most obvious thing in the world. If you have not been totally duped by the evangelical heresies on the radio and in the media and in books and in pulpits. If you believe in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, then you will make it your aim for his counsel to be decisive in all your choices. In what you watch on television, in what movies you attend, in whom you marry and whether to marry, in what jobs you take, in what courses you sign up for, in where to live, in what kind of car to drive, in how much to eat, in how to dress, in how to pray and read the Bible and build a sanctuary. I'm talking this morning to people who trust the Christ of the Bible, and that means trusting his counsel for joy above yours. There is no other way to heaven but faith in the whole biblical Christ. And I want to do three things now with Psalm 25 for those of you who are willing to trust the counsel of God. I want to describe the situation so that you can identify with it. I want to describe the response to the situation in his prayer so that you can learn from it. And I want to describe the reasons for his confidence in his praying for guidance if you like catchphrases, I'm going to talk about the elements of the situation, the content of the supplication, and the basis of the expectation. Number one, 
What are the elements of the situation here? And there are four as I see it. He is struggling with fear, loneliness, guilt, and confusion about the will of God. Let's look at those one at a time. Fear. Verse 2, oh my God, in thee I trust, let me not be put to shame, let not my enemies exult over me. In other words, there are enemies threatening him. Look at verse 19. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. So his first problem, the first element in the situation here is threats from without. And, and the natural response to that is to have to deal with fear of such violent hatred. I want you to see that, that normal life for God's people is trouble city. If your life is all roses, put a big question mark over your obedience. Those who desire to live a life of godliness, Paul said, are going to have trouble. Element number two. David is struggling with loneliness. Look at verse 16. Turn now to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Now that often happens that when you try to lead a life of radical obedience that results in trouble, you find out in a hurry how few your friends are. It happened to Paul, didn't it? Second Timothy 4, at my last hearing, nobody showed up. They all deserted me. Why? He's about to get killed by his enemies. It happened to Jesus in Gethsemane. Where do they all go? Why do they leave? He's about to get killed. You find out in a hurry, if life with your friends becomes a comradeship in battle, not just company for dinner. If all your life is company for dinner and Pictionary in the evening, we have one, it's all right. Bible Pictionary. <laughs> it's much harder. If all you are with your friends is company for dinner and Pictionary in the evening and no comradeship in war, you don't know who your friends are. Fairweather friends are a dime a dozen. And David didn't have any at the moment. The foes were crashing in and the friends were going out. And verse 16 says, I'm alone. Help me. The third element in his situation is his own inner guilt and sin. Four times he mentions it. Verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. Verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Verse 11. 
For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. And verse 18, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. He remembers the junk in his youth. Anybody got junk in their youth? Don't raise your hand. Everybody's got junk in his youth. He remembers it. You remember it. I remember it. And he remembers yesterday. And he looks in the mirror today and he sees great guilt according to verse 11. And he cries out. So you see the situation? Enemies coming in from outside. Friends taken off. And a monster within of guilt. That's not all. Number four. Confusion about what to do. It often happens, doesn't it? It's easy to decide what to do. It's nice and easy to, to hit on the will of God when all is roses. But when the enemies are crashing in from outside and life is falling apart on the periphery and inside this volcano of sin, then you lose your bearings. You look here and you're not sure. You look there and you're not sure. And you get so depressed and not being able to make a decision for what to do. You just want to sit down and cry. That's David. That's Christian life. Verses 4 and 5. Make me to know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth and teach me. That's the cry of a man who's not yet sure which way to turn in this circumstance. The Psalms are very precious, aren't they? I hope you live with them every day. My uh, Bible reading plan for the first three months of this year is to read a psalm a day, at least. A chapter in the Gospels a day. A chapter from the historical books in the Old Testament. And then to do some serious study of 2 Corinthians. Why did I choose Psalm and the Gospels? I don't think they're more inspired than the other books of the Bible. There's just something about those books. In the Gospels, I see Jesus like nowhere else, radical in his obedience to the Father. And in the Psalms, I see me in all my problems, more clearly than anywhere else in the Bible. And I need both visions for challenge and comfort. Turn to step number two in the message, the content of his supplication. David's response to fear, loneliness, guilt, and confusion about the will of God is to pray. And yours should be too. And I just want to point out that he prays about everything. Without any hesitation, he pours his heart out to God. Uh, verse uh, 20, deliver me from my foes. Verse 16, turn to me and, and solve the problem of my loneliness. Verse 7, 11, and 18, don't remember those sins of my youth and pardon my guilt. And verses 4 and 5, we just read, lead me. Please solve this problem of confusion about what I should do next in my life. Guide me, oh my God. I think you should do that. I suppose most of us take that for granted. I mean, what else would you do, right? As if you're a Christian, you, you get threatened from, from without, and you have uh, loneliness, and inside there's guilt and confusion. What else but pray, right? 
But let me raise this question. How do you know when God's answering the cry for guidance? What's it look like? I mean, suppose you have a choice in front of you. Most every one of you do today. And you've looked at the Bible for some pointer and the Bible doesn't give you any explicit directive on this particular choice. Should you pray for a vision? Should you pray for uh, a, a small, quiet voice in your mind to tell you what to do? Should you pray that God would so miraculously rearrange circumstances that there's absolutely no doubt which way to go? I would not deny that God can do any of that, nor that he might. But I think I would deny that that's his normal way of guiding. Rather... I think the normal means of guiding his children is through the development in them of spiritual sensitivity. The prerequisite of divine guidance is not the quest for messages, but the quest for holiness. Did you get that now? The prerequisite of divine guidance is not a a quest for messages. It's a quest for holiness. Or another way to put it would be that guidance is the product not of ecstatic heights, but spiritual depths. Let me try to put in a sentence how I think God normally guides his children and then take you to Psalm 25 in our last step and see how that's expressed here. God ordinarily guides his children by alerting them, making them aware of all the crucial factors of the circumstance or the situation. And more importantly, by leading them to a spiritual sensitivity by which they can perceive the implications of God's character and purpose which they've learned from the Bible. Now, that's a big mouthful, I know. Let me see if I can say it again and maybe make it a little clearer. The normal way by which God guides his children is two things. By very practically making them aware and alert of all the factors they should take into account. And then there's this mysterious, deep, spiritual inner work of God. He goes to work on our mind and our soul, our heart so that we are conformed, transformed to the image of God. There's a harmony, a synchronism, an attunement towards God's mind and God's heart, so that in a situation we can, as it were, I wouldn't even hesitate to use the word, intuit, because of how subjective it has to be sometimes, since the way seems so similar. A subjective intuition from a sanctified heart of what the implications of God's character and his purposes are, which we've learned from the Bible. That's the normal way, I think, by which God guides his children. Now, where does that come from? Or can we see that 
in Psalm 25. So I turn to the third point of the message, the basis of the psalmist's expectation. We've looked at the elements of his situation, fear, loneliness, guilt, and confusion about God's will. We've just briefly noticed that the content of his supplication is that he goes to God with all these things. And now the basis of his expectation, or another way to ask the question would be, what is it that the psalmist points out as evidence in the life where God is going to lead? So that you can have some sense of how God leads and that he will lead you when you pray that he will. Let's begin by reading verses 4 and 5 where he cries out again for guidance. Make me to know thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me, or literally make me walk in thy truth and teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. For thee I wait all day long. Now, what kind of person will God do that for? And what will it look like and feel like while he's doing it? That's what he answers in verses 8 through 12. Let's take them one at a time. In verse 8, the first qualification of those who get led is that they be sinners. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Now, I don't mean to say that you must sin in order to get guidance. Here's what I mean to say. If you've sinned, you can still get guidance. And that's good news. I tell you that is good news. So often Satan comes to you and says, look, you might as well quit praying. You are so bad and have sinned so many times, he's not about to answer your prayer for guidance. You know what to do? You know, we talked last week about the sword. I'll tell you a dagger to pull out at a moment like that. Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord, Satan. Therefore, he instructs sinners like me in the way. Get out of here! You, you fight like that in the morning? The second qualification that you must meet besides being a sinner is being humble. Verse 9. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. In other words, once you see your sin, it's not too far to walk to humility. You realize how helpless you are before a holy God. You forsake all self-reliance and give up on yourself totally. Then you're a candidate for guidance. In fact, God's guiding. God's guiding in that moment. He's doing a work within to bring you to the right choice. So you come to me. And say, Pastor John, how can I find out the will of God for my life? I say two things to start with. Number one, are you a sinner? Admit it. Number two, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. What's number three? Verse 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. So the third thing I would answer to you, if you want to find the will of God, I would say, are you keeping covenant with God? And you would say to me, that's not familiar language to me. What are you talking about? 
What does covenant keeping mean? Well, I'll tell you one thing it doesn't mean by looking back in the context. It doesn't mean sinlessness, right? You can all, you can all answer that question if I gave you a little Bible exam and I said, what is the evidence in the last three verses for why covenant keeping cannot mean sinlessness? You would all write verse eight. And I, I would say not enough. Fill out, you know. But <laughs> verse eight, verse eight makes it so clear. In fact, I want you to, I want you to see this because you may use this the rest of your life. This context, context here, verse eight, nine, ten is one of the clearest places in all the Old Testament that covenant keeping, which is synonymous with righteousness in the Old Testament, does not mean sinlessness. That's so freeing. Because you know, the Psalms again and again tell you to be righteous. In fact, don't you read Psalms, sometimes it bothers you. But he says, I, I, I stand on my righteousness. The Psalms say that sometimes, and you want to back off and say, Woo, you're supposed to say, I'm a sinner, you know. Don't talk like that. That's a Pharisee talk. But what they mean is, I keep covenant with my God. That's righteousness. Though we fail often and have remaining sin within, we can be covenant keepers. But now you would ask me then, okay, I, I see what it's not. It's not sinlessness, but what is it? And I would say, read on. So let's read on. Because the next two verses, I think, answer the question of what covenant keeping is. For thy name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Now, what is covenant keeping if you use those two verses to give your answer? I see three things. Number one, covenant keeping means acknowledging, admitting your sin and pleading for pardon. You can't keep covenant if you hide your sin and don't repent. Number two, covenant keeping. Now, this is much more unusual. Covenant keeping means seeing your only hope in the worth that God puts in his name. You see that there? For thy name's sake. Pardon my guilt. You can tell whether you are a biblical Christian by whether you go to God and say, forgive me for my sake or forgive me for your name's sake. You see, there is absolutely no claim upon God's forgiveness in me. I cannot claim it by any worth in me. So what do I claim? I claim his name. For your name's sake, O oh God, wipe out all my sin. Now, that's what covenant keeping means. It means seeing the worth of God's name as great enough so that God can use it to exonerate me. Now, that made no ultimate sense in the Old Testament. They had to buy that totally by faith without understanding how in the world a holy God could vindicate a sinner on his name's sake. But we know today how it happens. The cross of Christ was the vindication of the name of God. And now when we pray this prayer, oh, how much fuller it is with grace and glory that when I say today, pardon my guilt for your namesake, I add, which you vindicated before all the principalities and powers in the crucifixion of your Son. 
for the demonstration of your righteousness. And so the second step in covenant keeping is to love the name of God. And the third is the fear of the Lord. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way. What does it mean to fear God? Take you back a few weeks to Malachi. I don't think you need to go beyond these verses. You could, you could give three answers just like this. Number one, fearing God means fearing to insult his knowledge by presuming to keep your sins secret. Fearing the insult that it would be to the knowledge of God by presuming to keep your sins secret. Second, fearing God would mean the humility of reverence. I get that from the context here of humility, the reverence and humility. And the third thing I think it would imply is the fear of dishonoring the name of God by failing to trust his promises and counsels of joy. You don't have to infer that here. You can look back up to the first two verses of the psalm. To thee, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in thee I trust. So there it is. So you ask me now again, how can I know the will of God for my life? I would say, admit that you're a sinner. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Keep covenant with the Almighty. That is... Fear the Lord. And now the fourth thing I would add is trust Him. Trust His counsel and His promise. Well, that brings us back to where we started, right? Do you trust God this morning? I don't mean the God of your imagination. The God who comes to you offering forgiveness and stupid advice. I mean the God who comes to you offering forgiveness and infallible guidance to everlasting joy. Do you believe that Christ? Or have you tried to cut him in half with the sword of self-assertion? Take his forgiveness so that you can escape the flames of hell and say, no, thank you. To your guidance in my life about how to live my sex life. Or what movies I go to. Or how to treat my friends. Or where to live. Or how much to give to the church. No thank you. I'm saved by grace. And half of Christ. Can't do it. I plead with you not to bank on half of Christ this morning. Because he's not the biblical Christ and cannot give you across the, the Jordan in the end. Rather, believe on the whole biblical Christ. Which means aiming, I choose that word very carefully because I know we're imperfect. Aiming to make the counsel of Christ decisive in all your decisions. Now, if you're willing to do that and you come to Psalm 25, what you find, number one, is that the Christian life is going to be a life of trouble. Fear, loneliness, guilt, and confusion often about what we should do next. 
Then you find out that what to do in that trouble is to give it all up to God in prayer and roll it over onto him off of your weak shoulders onto his broad, merciful shoulders. And then the third thing you see in this psalm is that the prerequisite for being guided is not the quest for messages, but the quest for holiness. It's not ecstatic heights. It's spiritual depth. It's humility and brokenness before God, the admission of sin, the keeping of his covenant, the fearing of his name, the trusting of his counsels. Through all of that, God gives the spiritual sensitivity by which you will make choices. Now, let me close with a reference to Bethlehem. Nine weeks we've got. Nine weeks. And the income expansion program will be over. In those nine weeks, we are going to make so many decisions that will in all likelihood affect the shape of the ministry of this church for 100 years if the Lord doesn't come back, which I hope he does. Now we've learned what we must do, right? To find guidance, guidance for what to do in this process. We humble ourselves. We repent of our sin. We keep covenant with God. We fear the Lord. We trust in His counsels of joy. Suppose God, underneath all that chipping there on that cleaner wall, were with a finger of fire to draw the blueprint of the new sanctuary. Okay, fine, no problem. I'll, I'll build it. We've got it, right? We know what the will of God is. But if he doesn't draw it up there for us, there's only one hope that we will wind up with a sanctuary that blesses believers, reaches the world, and glorifies God. And that is by becoming holy. Let's stand for prayer. I'm going to give you the opportunity with a song to express your heartfelt intention of aiming to make the counsel of Christ and of God in his word decisive in all the decisions of your life in this year. I invite you, if that's your intention, to follow the the Christ of the Bible, to sing with me one verse of, O God, our help in ages past.